0: Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you very much, Brian, for that kind introduction. It's an honor for me to be here, and a pleasure to be back, you know, and so many friends. And and I was hoping it would be a little warmer today, (laughs) but, but after Chicago, anything is better. Better than Chicago. So, <laughs> just a little background on this this talk. Um, last year, I gave a course there at the University of Chicago, on, just on Aquinas on justice. We just read through the questions on justice, um, and one thing that struck me, I had not noticed it before, is that in the in the treaties on justice, questions fifty-seven to seventy-eight of the secunda Secundae, there's no question or even article on punishment, which I found kind of surprising, you know, because you know it's a very detailed treatment of justice uh, in many areas, and I think it's clear punishment is a fairly significant juridical phenomenon. Right? So you'd think he would have had more to say about it, um, and in fact, there can be no doubt that Thomas thinks of punishment as at least partly concerned with justice. In fact, he thinks that justice enters into the very concept of punishment. This is a quote from question 108 of the Secunda Secundae, which is not within the treaties on justice properly so called, but it's in the the question on on a virtue connected with justice called vindicatio. But he says, punishment may be considered in two ways. In one way, according to the notion of punishment, the ratio of punishment. And in this way, punishment is due only to sin, because through punishment, the equality of justice is restored, inasmuch as he who by sinning has followed his own will too much suffers something against his will. In another way, punishment can be considered insofar as it is a medicine, not only healing past sin, but also preserving from future sin or promoting some good. So here I just want to focus on that first consideration, the consideration of punishment as punishment and as restoring the equality of justice. So I just call that retribution. Fortunately, even in the Summa, within the Summa, Thomas has quite a few things to say about it. My object is simply to pose and to try to answer some basic questions about the justice of it. There is not a lot of recent literature on punishment in general. I'm talking about punishment in general here, not capital punishment, just punishment. It's important. I don't really want to talk about capital punishment if we can avoid it. We may not. um but there's not a lot of recent literature on it and the literature that there is I find it helpful kind of only up to a point I'll mention a couple of names shortly each I have five questions about the justice of punishment each of them concerns whether or how some element of Thomas's teaching on justice applies to retributive punishment according to Thomas's own account The author of one recent book on Aquinas on Punishment, Peter Karl Korotansky, says, "...punishment fits only awkwardly into his discussion of justice." As I'll explain, I don't agree with Korotansky's reasons for saying that, but I do agree that the fit is kind of a complicated matter. It's not immediate. So my first question is, To what kind of justice does retribution belong? One of Korotansky's reasons for finding the fit awkward is that Thomas refers to the justice of punishment, quote, this is quoting Korotansky, sometimes as commutative and sometimes as distributive. I think the question of which kind of justice Thomas takes retribution to constitute offers a good entry into the larger question of how his overall teaching on justice applies to it. So first, just a little background. Most of you probably know this, but for Thomas, the virtue of justice comes in three specific kinds. On this, he takes himself to be following Aristotle. One kind of justice is what he calls a general virtue. It is not confined to any one particular field of human conduct. In a sense, it is all moral virtue, though only in a sense. Its specificity consists in its disposing persons to act in all fields of conduct as the good of their civil community requires. Since such requirements are determined by law, this general justice is also called legal justice. The two other kinds of justice, commutative and distributive, are particular virtues they are restricted in scope, serving to rectify actions that directly regard individuals. Distributive justice rectifies the work of distributing a community's shared goods among its members. Community justice rectifies exchanges with single individuals. Now, it's true that in one place, Thomas associates punishment with <laughs> distributive justice. In Book 3 of the Summa Contra Gentiles, he raises the question whether all of God's punishments and rewards are equal. His answer is negative, and one of his reasons for it is this, quote, The equality of justice is such that unequals are rendered to unequals, and therefore recompense through punishments and rewards would not be just if all rewards and all punishments were equal. Now, of course, Thomas is assuming that God is just. In fact, in the Summa to Elogie, he argues that distributive justice does belong to God insofar as he orders the universe according to the rank of things, whereas commutative justice cannot belong to him because this would mean that he repays his debts, which is nonsense because he is debtor to no one. Nevertheless, Thomas really leaves no doubt that retribution is a matter of commutative justice. He indicates this explicitly in many places. I'll just quote two here. This is a, I should say, this is a short, slightly shorter version of a longer paper that I've been working on. Quote, the retribution that is affected by the authority of public power, according to the sentence of a judge, pertains to commutative justice. That's one quote. Another. Punishing sinners, insofar as it pertains to public justice, is an act of community justice. Very simple. What properly decides this question is the nature of the equality that retribution constitutes. For every kind of justice consists in, or has as its formal object, some mode of equality. Quote, the general form of justice is equality in which distributive and commutative justice agree, but in the one is found equality according to geometric proportionality, in the other according to arithmetic proportion. Now, distributive justice certainly can apply to retribution insofar as it's a question of the distribution of punishments in a community. The proportions among the punishments as to their severity must be equal to the proportions among those punished as to the gravity of their guilt. That's a geometric equality, the equality of two proportions. But one thing is the justice of the distribution of punishments across a multitude of offenders, and another thing is the justice of a given punishment in itself in relation to the particular offender who is punished. This is a direct or arithmetic equality of one thing, one res, Thomas's language, the punishment, to another thing, the offender's guilt. This is the mode of equality that belongs to commutative justice. The two sorts of justice differ, in fact, not only materially by the kind of action that they concern, that is distributions, in one case, and exchanges, in the other, but also And above all, formally, they differ formally as to the modes of equality at which their actions terminate. And these are what most properly distinguish them as kinds of justice, the two different modes of equality. In a moment, I'll lay out what exactly the equality that's realized in just retribution consists in. But first, let me just address briefly a pair of objections. To the thesis that the justice of retribution is communities. One objection stems from the fact that Thomas says that only distributive justice and not community justice belongs to God. <coughs> Thomas is about as far as possible from denying that God punishes or exercises retribution. On the contrary, on Thomas's view, retribution belongs most properly to God and to the truth of his final judgment. The punishments of this life are more medicinal than retributive, he says. And this is true whether they are inflicted by God or by man. This suggests that retribution must be an act of distributive justice after all. That's the only justice that you can ascribe to God. (coughs) Against that, however, is what Thomas says about Jesus' declaration in the Sermon on the Mount... With what measure you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Thomas says, quote, That form of divine judgment involves the concept of commutative justice, the ratio of commutative justice, namely insofar as it rewards merits and punishes sins. And in fact, in the question on divine justice, Thomas argues that even though God is debtor to no one, He does render to each creature that which is due to it, quote, according to the ratio of its nature and its condition. None of that implies that he has debts that he has to repay. What is due to a thing in this way is itself determined by the order of divine wisdom. And he is ordered to none, but all things are ordered to him. So I think we can say that even though God does not have the virtue of commutative justice, since that would imply the imperfection of at least potentially having debts to repay. Nevertheless, out of his higher virtue, he can certainly affect the perfection to which commutative justice is ordered. Another objection rests on the fact that the punishment pertaining properly to justice is that which is inflicted by public authority. This seems to mean that it is inflicted by, or at least on behalf of, the community but isn't the justice exercised by a community toward its members distributive justice thomas does say that the order of one private person to another is directed by commutative justice which has to do with the things that are done mutually by two persons with one another however it seems to me that here too we should keep in mind the distinction between the virtue and the form of the acts to which it is ordered Thomas certainly ascribes acts of commutative justice to to agents that are public authorities, namely to judges. The work of judging, he says, applies commonly to commutative and to distributive justice. For by judgment can be determined how something common is to be distributed among many and how one should restore to another what what he has received from him. Further on in the same passage, Thomas remarks that even in commutative justice, the judge takes from one and gives to another, and this pertains to distributive justice. So they're mingled together somehow in the work of the judge. Even a human judge in dictating what pertains to commutative justice is not paying a debt of his own to someone. He is not exercising that virtue himself. His own justice as a judge Extends to the forms of equality and rectitude that pertain to both kinds of particular justice, commutative and distributive. Thomas says, quote, "Judgment pertains to judgment to justice in so far as it is, it is found in a more dominant way, principaliori, a more dominant or more principal way in him who presides." And I think we can say, typically, that which is higher and causal possesses in a unified way what is found divided up in, in its effects. So this is, the judge has, is fine, exercising both kinds of justice. And he has them in, a, in the one virtue proper, the justice proper to a judge. I think maybe this explains why Thomas discusses the work of judgment in secunda Secundae Question 60 before he presents the division of particular justice into distributive and community. <clears throat> that's question 61 so the work of the judge kind of embraces both Thomas also says that quote if someone who serves a community were to be repaid for the service rendered this would not be distributive justice but commutative. for in distributive justice one considers the equality of what one receives not to what he has rendered but to what another receives according to the measure of each person So when a community pays an individual for a service, that's community justice, even though it's from the community. The applicability of this to retribution seems obvious. The only difference is that the repayment is not for a service rendered, but for an offense perpetrated. Evidently, the distinction of the kinds of justice, according to whether the justice is of an individual toward his community, of a community toward an individual member, or of one individual toward another is only a material distinction. And for the most part, the formal and essential distinction is according to the modes of equality to which they are ordered. At least that's how I take it. But we still need to see what exactly the equality that characterizes retribution consists in. What exactly is this equality? So this is my second question. How does retribution constitute commutative justice? In the longer version of this paper, I offer a, a brief discussion of Thomas's account of contrapassum, reciprocity, which he says pertains to commutative justice. That discussion is interesting because Thomas finds the first or immediate application of the concept of contrapassum precisely in punitive compensations for injuries. But the passage is very long and somewhat complicated. And so here, for brevity's sake, let me go directly to some other passages that indicate what the equality that retribution constitutes properly consists in. One passage is from the Summa Contra Gentiles. It concerns the way in which a punishment responds to a misdeed. And Thomas says, Whatever evil occurs in human actions must be marshaled under the order of some good. This is most fittingly done in the punishment of sins. For thus, things that exceed in due quantity are driven under the order of justice, which restores to equality. Now, a man exceeds the due level of his quantity when he prefers his own will to the divine will by gratifying it against God's ordinance. And this inequality is removed when against his will, a man is compelled to suffer something according to the divine ordinance. That the justice of retribution chiefly regards the wrongdoer's will, surely helps to explain why for Thomas, retribution belongs most properly to God and to the truth of his final judgment. Obviously, only God knows a person's will perfectly so as to be able to judge and rule it with perfect justice. Another text is the one I quoted at the start of the talk from, from the, the question on Vindicatio. Through punishment, the equality of justice is restored inasmuch as he who by sinning has followed his own will too much suffers something against his will. Let me give a couple of other quotes just to bring the point home. The act of sin makes man deserving of punishment insofar as he transgresses the order of divine justice to which he cannot return except through some penal compensation that restores him to the equality of justice such that according to the order of divine justice he who has been too indulgent to his will by transgressing God's commandments undergoes either willingly or unwillingly, something contrary to what he would wish. This restoration of the equality of justice by penal compensation is also to be observed in injuries done to one's fellow men. And one other quote. The disorder of guilt is not brought back to the order of justice except by punishment, since it is just that he who has been too indulgent to his will should suffer something against his will, for thus will equality be restored. Hence it is written in the Apocalypse, As much as she hath glorified herself and lived in delicacies, so much torment and sorrow give ye to her. So, what what exactly is it about the malefactor's will that the punishment is supposed to compensate for? Clearly, it is not the mere external damage that his will may have produced, either to someone's property or to another person himself. These evils, of course, do call for compensation, but the punishment regards something else. Another quote. Just as a man who strikes another, though he gain nothing thereby, is bound to compensate the injured person, so too he that is guilty of theft or robbery is bound to make compensation for the loss incurred, although he be no better off, and in addition, he must be punished for the injustice committed. What punishment directly compensates for is not the mere external damage that the malefactor may have caused. It is something in the malefactor's will itself. It's not quite the sheer satisfaction that he took in his misdeed. A grave crime may afford its perpetrator only slight satisfaction, and a light offense may give great pleasure. And, of course, not all pleasures are bad at all. Right? So it's not the pleasure that he takes us up. Rather, what the punishment compensates for is the degree of excess with which the malefactor follows his will beyond what is due. The punishment consists in something contrary to his will that is proportionate to this excess. On this account, it's clear that between the punishment and the wrongdoing, there is a certain equality of the commutative sort. However, in the text cited earlier, Thomas says not only that the punishment is somehow equal to the misdeed, or that it has in itself the equality that belongs to community of justice, but also that it restores or repairs the equality of justice. So there seems to be another matter of justice, another equality in the picture. So this brings up my third question. Who is it who is given their own, quod suum est, in Thomas's language, or their right, yus suum, through retribution? In the longer paper, at this point, I discuss the account of justice, the justice of retribution given by William Matthew Deam. On Deam's view, the primary and essential justice of punishment consists entirely in the equality of what the malefactor undergoes to what he has done. It's all in his will. Any equality between the malefactor and another party is contingent and secondary on Deem's account. That's at work only insofar as the malefactor's misdeed happens to have one or more individual victims whose honor is restored by the punishment. So this is a quote from Deem. Dessert is entirely concerned with the will of the agent himself and this account he says deem says introduces a copernican revolution into the contemporary discussion of retribution it's all about the will of the of the malefactor well in my opinion it also introduces a copernican revolution into thomas's discussion <laughs> because on thomas's view justice always goes beyond what pertains to one particular agent every kind of justice establishes some sort of equality between two or more agents Only in a metaphorical sense can justice regard a single agent. He's very clear about that. Now, I do not mean that the main thing is the restitution of the honor of the victim. I grant that that's secondary at best. After all, not all punishable offenses even have individual victims. Think of tax evasion, for example. But insofar as retribution is a case of commutative justice, it must consist in some sort of restitution. For restitution is the act of commutative justice for Thomas. Deem does not see retribution as a kind of restitution and in fact neither does Korotanski. Now of course, if retribution constitutes some sort of restitution then there must be someone to whom the restitution is made. So the question is Who is that? Who is given their own or their right? This after all is the proper proper act of justice generally to render to each what is his or what he has a right to. Now maybe the answer that first comes to mind just because of the way we speak is that it's the one who is punished, the wrongdoer. We say he gets what he deserves. But really, isn't it kind of absurd to speak of the wrongdoer's right to be punished? Okay. As Maritain says, Jack Ketch, you know, the famous executioner in the 17th century, Jack Ketch, if he is an executioner by profession, may have the duty to hang Jonathan Wilde, the famous criminal. And yet, this does not mean that Wilde claims the right to be hanged. Yeah, it seems clear. After all, to punish someone is to inflict on them what is somehow bad for them. In Thomas's lexicon, it is the kind of bad called precisely malum pene. Rights are not to evils, they're to goods. Justice is another's good, as Aristotle says. Now, Thomas does once in an early writing speak of punishment as a malum debitum, a due evil or due bad. That might sound to an unwary ear as though one could have a right to something bad. But in the Summa Theologiae, Thomas makes it clear that the justice of punishment lies in depriving the malefactor of something that previously was his or something that he once had a right to. By his misdeed, he has lost the right to it. Quote, When someone by his unjust will assigns to himself more than he is owed, it is just that he be lessened even as to what he was previously owed. Now he's not owed that anymore. Yet we should not think that being bad, punishment is simply not the sort of thing that anyone can have a right to. It is true that rights are to goods, but Thomas insists that just punishment is bad only materially. What is formal about it, what is intended per se in punishment is good. And this is kind of a striking quote, I think. He says, if in return for the evil of guilt that someone commits, a judge renders the evil of punishment according to justice to compensate for the malice, he does indeed, indeed bring evil materially But formally and per se, he brings good. Thus, when a judge hangs a criminal for murder, he does not render evil for evil, but rather good for evil. It's kind of striking to put it that way. So it's a good. And if it is a matter of justice, then it is a good that someone has a right to. Who is that? Well I think we should look a little more closely at Thomas's account of the accounts of the justice of retribution and how it involves equality. What we should notice is that there are in fact two equalities. One is what we've seen between the punishment and the malefactor's misdeed. But again Thomas says repeatedly that punishment restores or repairs or leads back to the equality of justice. Obviously, the equality between the punishment and the misdeed is not something that the punishment restores, since before the punishment, it did not exist. But evidently, there is a prior equality of justice that the misdeed itself upsets, and that the punishment restores through its equality with the misdeed. What is this equality of justice, and whom is it toward? Well, I think really the answer is obvious. What the malefactor is punished for is breaking the law. He has somehow violated legal justice. Legal justice consists in a certain mode of equality. For it is certainly a moral virtue, and, quote, the good of moral virtue consists in being equal to the measure of reason. And it is clear that that equality or conformity is the mean between excess and defect. That's in general... In the case of justice, this means that it consists in being equal to the measure of reason. Being equal to the measure of reason is also a real mean, an equality in the things that this virtue is concerned with. And in the case of legal justice in particular, it's the equality or conformity of one's conduct with the law of one's community. That's the equality of legal justice. Legal justice consists in neither doing what the law forbids, which would be a kind of excess, or omitting or omitting what it commands, a kind of defect. And clearly the law is the very measure by reference to which the malefactor is judged to have satisfied his will excessively. The, this, parenthetically, the will can be satisfied both by doing something desirable and by omitting to do something undesirable And so both by what is excessive and by what is defective in comparison with the law. It can take satisfaction in either way. Undue satisfaction. Moreover, as Thomas sees it, the source of the punishment that compensates for this excess of satisfaction is itself nothing other than the order of the law. That's how he explains punishment is the law rising up against some violation of it. Either natural law or human law or divine law. In short, the equality of justice that punishment restores is nothing other than the malefactors being in conformity with the law. And this is to say that the one to whom punishment makes restitution or renders what is its own or what it has a right to is the community itself and its sovereign. They have a right to the subjection of its members to its law. Punishment in fact achieves this in two ways. As threatened, when punishment is threatened, it sometimes brings about voluntary voluntary subjection or obedience to the law and to the legislator out of fear. When actually inflicted for a crime, punishment compensates for that lack of voluntary subjection insofar as it constitutes a proportionate involuntary subjection. Again, a quote from Thomas. Bad persons are subject to the eternal law imperfectly as to their doings insofar as they imperfectly know it and are imperfectly inclined to the good, but as much as is lacking on the part of doing is made up for on the part of undergoing, namely insofar as they undergo what the eternal law dictates about them inasmuch as they fail to do what suits the eternal law. So obviously the idea is not that punishment actually inflicted (coughs) brings the malefactor into active conformity with the law. It only brings him back somehow to the equality of justice, not to justice itself. It does not make him be just or act justly. It does not justify him. And neither is he the one who is actively making restitution to the community (coughs) or rendering to the community what is is its own or what it has a right to. He is merely passive. It would be more accurate to say that he is that which is restored. By his crime, he had in some way withdrawn himself from subjection to the community's order. He had become an outlaw. Retribution restores him to such subjection. The community has a right to this, and so it constitutes a restoration of the equality of justice. Next question, is retribution not really legal justice? The answer that I just gave seems to call into question, again, the thesis that retribution is an act of community justice. If it's an act of justice toward the community, and indeed a work of bringing someone into conformity, albeit forced conformity, with the law, is it not an act of legal justice? As far as I know, Thomas doesn't address this question directly, but he does address a similar one, which is, I think it's interesting. Whether the virtue of penance, this is in the, the tertia pars, whether the virtue of penance, whose act is satisfaction, pertains to theological virtue, rather than to the moral virtue of justice. Now he holds that it pertains to the virtue of justice, satisfaction and penance. It can seem that it pertains to theological virtue because what moral virtue is about, its matter or its object, is human operation, whereas theological virtue is about God. And the one to whom satisfaction is made in penance is God, of course. Penance, quote, works to the destruction of sin insofar as it is an offense to God. I think we could say, we might say similarly. It seems like punishment works to the destruction of injustice insofar as it is inimical to the common good, and so it pertains to the virtue that immediately concerns the common good, which is legal justice. That would be the the objection. Now, Thomas's answer about penance, why it's not a theological virtue, it doesn't pertain directly to theological virtue, is that the very fact that its act is satisfaction made to God is it exactly what shows that it is not a theological virtue. Unlike the theological virtues, what penance is immediately about, immediately, is not God himself, but rather, precisely, the satisfaction that is made to God. This is a general point about justice. Its immediate object, placing it in its proper species, is not the one to whom his own is being rendered, but that which is his own, and is to be rendered to him. This is another quote. The person that justice is toward is not said to be the matter of justice, but the matter is rather the things that are distributed or exchanged. Hence, the matter of penance is not God, but the human acts by which God is offended or placated. But God stands as the one that the justice is toward From this, it is clear that penance is not a theological virtue because it does not have God for its matter or for its object. So penance is, after all, a species of justice, community justice. I think the comparison with retribution, to which Thomas likens satisfaction in the article that I just quoted, I I think the comparison is, is not difficult to see the one whose own is rendered to it through retribution is the community but the just thing the object of the justice whose act is retribution is not the community rather it is the retribution itself the punishment and this is just in the manner of an object of commutative justice by its proportional equality to the misdeed of the one punished Now, you might object that the comparison with penance limps because the question here is whether the justice of retribution is commutative or legal. Which is it? Commutative or legal? But even if it's legal, which is what the objection is, the justice's object cannot be the community itself. Like all justice, legal justice has human operation for its object. And so the act of retribution could still be its object the object wouldn't be immediately the community, even if it's legal justice. In fact, I think it, its object is uh, an object of legal justice. I think it is an object of legal justice. I say this for two reasons. First, legal justice is not on a par with distributive and community justice. Those are particular virtues. Legal justice is a general virtue extending potentially to all particular virtues insofar as they can be ordered to the common good. Obviously, distributive and commutative justice can be so ordered. Those are particular virtues ordered by legal justice. And the justice that affects retribution is ordered, per se, to the common good, because the right to this retribution is the community's. Also, the objects of legal justice are the operations dictated by the law as such. It is clear that retribution is of this sort inasmuch as the proper agent of retribution is the judge and inasmuch as the judge's proper work consists entirely in applying the law correctly. For both of these reasons, it seems to me even if there are other virtuous actions that are not directly matters of legal justice, public retribution cannot be virtuous or just unless it is exercised with legal justice. And in this way, too, it is, in fact, comparable to penance. Because Thomas insists that even though penance is not a theological virtue, he comes back and says the very fact that its object is ordered to God entails that it must be with the theological virtues. It's connected to the theological virtues. And it shares in what pertains to these virtues. Likewise, public retribution must certainly share in the things that pertain to legal justice. But none of this gainsays the thesis that retribution is properly an act of community justice. For it succeeds in being an act of legal justice or of serving the common good and complying with the law only insofar as it has the equality that characterizes community justice. In other words, it's an act of legal justice by virtue of being an act of community justice. In technical terms, it would be commanded by legal justice But what it is immediate to or elicited from is commutative justice. And acts are most properly denominated by the powers or the habits from which they are elicited. So finally, you'll be glad. This is my last question. Is retribution obligatory? Peter Korytansky holds that society is absolutely obliged to to punish crime. This is because punishment is a matter of justice. Acts of justice are obligatory. This means they are necessary for moral rectitude. Quoting Thomas, to give someone what is his which belongs to justice is a matter of necessity. Now, I think Koryastansky's judgment requires some qualification. To see why, we should first consider exactly who it is to whom it belongs to inflict punishment. I'm thinking of the following passage. Thomas says, on two counts, a judge is hindered from absolving a guilty person person of his punishment. First, on the part of the accuser whose right it sometimes is that the guilty party should be punished. For instance, on account of some injury committed against the accuser. Because it is not in the power of a judge to remit such punishment, since every judge is bound to give each man his right. Second, the judge finds a hindrance on the part of the commonwealth, whose power he exercises and to whose good it belongs that evildoers should be punished. So, if the law requires that a certain crime be punished, then the judge is obliged to punish that crime. But more precisely, Most judges are so obliged. There is an important exception. That same passage continues as follows. Nevertheless, "Nevertheless, in this respect, there is a difference between judges of lower degree and the supreme judge, i.e. the sovereign, to whom plenary public authority is entrusted. For the inferior judge has no power to absolve a guilty man from punishment against the laws imposed on him by his superior. Wherefore, Augustine, commenting on John, says, John's passage, Thou shouldst not have any power against me, our Lord, against, speaking to Pilate, Augustine says, The power of which God gave Pilate was such that he was under the power of Caesar, so that he was by no means free to absolve the person accused. On the other hand, the sovereign who has plenary authority in the commonwealth can lawfully absolve the guilty person, provided that the injured party consent to the remission if he sees that this will not be detrimental to the public good, that this will not be detrimental to the public good. Why can the sovereign absolve? The answer is simple. Just as an individual is free either to demand what he has a right to or to waive his right to it, so is a community. And the sovereign either is the community itself in a direct democracy or else acts on behalf of the community. However, this raises kind of a sub-question. Justice in the proper sense is toward another. It is giving another what he has a right to. And injustice is depriving another of what he has a right to. Giving up what oneself has a right to is not per se unjust. Justice does not require claiming what one has a right to. Thomas says, when one man gives voluntarily to another that which he does not owe him, he causes neither injustice nor inequality. You can just think of the, labors and the you know that come out at, in the morning and at noon and late in the afternoon. For a man's ownership depends on his own will. So there is no disproportion if he forfeits something of his own free will, either by his own or by another's <coughs> action. And so speaking precisely about retribution and its most proper agent, which is God, Thomas says, God acts mercifully, not indeed by going against his justice, but by doing something more than justice. Thus a man who pays another 200 denarii, though owing him only 100, does nothing against justice, but acts liberally or mercifully. The case is the same with one who pardons an offense committed against him, For in remitting it, he may be said to bestow a gift. Hence, the apostle calls remission a forgiving. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Hence, it is clear that mercy does not destroy justice, but in a sense is the fullness thereof. And thus it is said in James, mercy exalteth itself above judgment. Moreover, Thomas says unqualifiedly that God punishes the reprobate less than they deserve. This means less than he or his community has a right to. But we've already seen that the primary right to the infliction of retribution on wrongdoers belongs to the community and its sovereign. So if the community or its sovereign is also the one who inflicts retribution, then the one who has a right to it is also the one who renders it. And so that's the question. Even if retribution restores the equality of justice, how can it be an act of justice? Properly so-called. At most, will it not be mere metaphorical judgment, metaphorical justice, someone giving themselves what is theirs? Well, this is tricky, but I think the answer is more or less as follows. See what you think. When an individual gives himself what is his own, to this extent he is not performing an act of justice because his own, as such, is not also another's. But when a community gives itself what is its own, or when its sovereign gives it that, this is an act of justice, because insofar as the good is the community's own, it is also another's, or rather many others. This is precisely what it means to say that, that its good is common. The good of a community is the good of its many members too. And unlike the parts of an individual, they are unqualifiedly distinct from each other and from the community. They are not one with it in being, but only in a qualified way as ordered to it. So consider this quote, how Thomas explains the very notion of legal or general justice, how he shows that it is truly justice. This is back in question 59. He says, Justice orders a man in comparison with another, which can be in two ways in one way toward another considered singularly, and the other way to another in common. That is, insofar as he who serves some community serves all the men who are contained under that community. So I see no reason why this consideration should apply only to individuals who are subordinated to a community and not also to the community as a whole and to its sovereign insofar as they too can serve both the community itself and thereby all those who are contained under it. Nor is there any reason why the service cannot be an act whose form is that of community justice. So in this way, I think, when a community or its sovereign inflicts retribution for a crime, even though they are the very ones who have the right to it, it is still an act of justice in the strict sense. Everything for the common good can have the the, the nature of an act of justice. This, however, brings us back to the question of how it is that the sovereign has the right to absolve anyone from punishment. If retribution is indeed an act of justice, is it not obligatory? Thomas does, after all, hold that punishing wrongdoers is a requirement of natural law, even though the determination of punishments is a matter of positive law, deciding what the punishment should be. Nevertheless, he clearly does not hold that punishment is always obligatory. It may not be obligatory in some cases because in some cases it may not be an act of justice. I mean, even in cases where it is equal to the malefactor's bad will. This is because in some cases it may not be for the good of the one who in general has a right to it. That is, it may not suit the common good. Thus, as far as punishment by human authority goes, Thomas holds that it is justified only if, it, only if medicinal considerations require it. And he holds that such considerations may also rule it out. A, pun- a certain punishment might cause an insurrection or something. You punish someone and you might have a rebellion. So don't do it. That wouldn't, even be, that wouldn't be just. Hmm. He has several passages along those lines. But the question remains, and this with this I finish, the question remains about divine retribution. Thomas says that punishments of the afterlife are not medicinal. They are strictly retribution for sins. And since the justice whose order is violated by sin is primarily justice toward God, he is not under an absolute obligation to exact retribution for sin. Quote, God has supreme power of judging, and it concerns him whatever is done sinfully against anyone. Therefore, he is free to remit the punishment, especially since punishment is due to sin chiefly because it is done against him. And yet he does exact retribution, if not fully, at least to a significant extent. Thomas sees this as an integral to the overall order of the universe that God oversees. And Thomas definitely regards it as a work of justice. He says, The order of justice which requires that punishment be inflicted upon sinners pertains to the order of the universe. And accordingly, God is the author of the evil that is punishment, though not of the evil of guilt. Even the overall order of the universe, however, is not the ultimate end. It is for the sake of showing the goodness of God, who is the absolutely ultimate end. The equality of justice that his retribution restores is that of a creature's due subjection to him. This is good, certainly, but even it is, after all, only a particular good. Were God to effect it in every case, it might seem that he needed it, which he does not. On the other hand, if were he to set it aside entirely, he could not truthfully threaten sin with punishment, And hence, he could not inspire the fear of punishment. And I I found this striking. Thomas sees the fear of punishment, you know, slavish fear. He sees that fear as a direct effect of God's love. And even as a work, though not a gift, but a work of the Holy Spirit. For it can serve as the beginning of the process by which a creature becomes his friend. In any case, it seems clear that Thomas has reason to say "...God does does not remit punishment except insofar as that befits his goodness, which is the root of all laws." That's interesting, too, I think. His goodness is the root of all laws. Hold on to that. In saying this, he seems to bring even God's mercy back under the common notion of his justice, of which his vindictive justice is only a particular application." For the notion of his justice is primarily the notion of his doing what befits his own goodness. And so both his mercy and his vindictive justice serve to represent his goodness. And in that way they're just. Among men, therefore, as to some whom he predestines, God willed to represent his goodness by way of mercy, sparing them. As to others whom he reprobates, God willed to represent his goodness by way of justice, punishing And we should keep in mind that God's goodness, which is identical with him, is the first and absolutely highest common good. It cannot but be best for the universe that God always do what befits his goodness. And yet, this seems to be something that we should not say casually, as though we already saw the fittingness of everything we believe he does, or already understood the truth of his judgment. Rightly to praise God's justice is also to beg for his mercy. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu.